Hey, welcome everybody. Aaron here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. I'm just so excited to get the chance to be with you and open up the scriptures together. Hey, before we get started though, quick reminder down below there's a link. Trish put together some amazing kids material for you and your kids. Go ahead and check that out if you get a chance. And again, again, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're in the middle of this series called Rooted. What does it look like to be rooted in our relationship with Jesus, especially in times like this? Uh, and then for today, we're going to be in this, this story. What's one of my favorite stories in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 5. And I'm really excited to be with it, be with you in this story. And today what we're talking about specifically is what does it look like to be pursuing Jesus, rooted in our pursuit of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is always pursuing us. You know, I think of the story of the prodigal son, but there's also this invitation in Scripture in the language of the Psalms to, quote, seek his face, to pursue, to go after, to seek Jesus more and more, to go deeper with Jesus. You know, and especially in times like this where there's a lot of fear and even uncertainty, I don't know about you, but the longer that this shelter in place goes on, it's easier to sort of give in to the fear and sort of dwell on the uncertainty of it all. You know, a couple months ago when this thing first started at one level, I wasn't really that fearful. I was like, ah, oh, no big deal. This is fine. We'll just, you know, it'll pass and we'll be back to normal in no time. But the longer that this has gone on, it's just really easy for me to sort of give in to some of the fear and a lot having to do with the future. I mean, what is the future going to look like? What is normal or the new normal going to be like? You know, but one thing that has been just so healing and helpful for me in this season is to, be, to go back to the scriptures and to a few key passages where God has consistently spoken and, and I know that he's going to speak afresh in this season. So for today, I actually wanted to share one of those passages with you. It's actually from the book of Mark. I mentioned that a moment ago. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It's actually the story where Jesus heals a little girl and where Jesus heals this woman with the flow of blood. And we'll talk about both of these in a second. So if you can, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. We're going to read through the text, unpack it as we go, and really I pray that God speaks and, and, and we respond to what he has to say. So starting in verse 21, Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that, we may, so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. I mean, this man is desperate. This man, the text says, is a ruler of the synagogue. He would have had a very high reputation in the community. But that desperation, all that reputation goes out the window as he is desperate. He implores Jesus asking many times. It's like this idea of coming again and again, Jesus, my little daughter, is dying or is at the point of death. Now pay attention to that phrase, daughter, because it's going to come up again in the text. Jairus says, my daughter is dying. Come and save her that she may be made well. And notice how Jesus responds to this man's faith. He gets up and goes with him. And I love this about Jesus. As this man is pursuing after him, in a moment of desperation, Jesus responds to this man's pursuit. Jesus responds to this man's faith. Keep, just keep that thought in the back of your head as well as we go through this text. Jesus responds to this man's faith. Now, there's this large crowd in verse 24 pressing in around him. 
Verse 25, there was a woman who had been subject to bleeding, a discharge of blood. It's this condition that we'll talk about in a second here for 12 long years. I mean, this condition would have made this woman unclean, unable to be a part of society according to the book of Leviticus in Leviticus 15. A social outcast. I mean, just imagine the lack of not having any human connection or touch this woman would have experienced for 12 years. And the text says in verse 26 that she suffered a great deal under many physicians and spent all that she had and was not getting better, but only grew worse. I mean, again, try as best you can to imagine being this woman. This woman, maybe she's sort of chasing after all these different ways to get healing and isn't really finding any solution. Maybe though, she's a victim. Maybe these doctors aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And regardless, in this story today, we're going to see that Jesus comes and responds to this woman's faith as well and brings healing to her life as well. I mean, Jesus is responding to this pursuit, both of Jairus and of this woman. Because in verse 27, the text says she had heard about Jesus. She came up from behind. Now compare that with Jairus. I want to do this throughout the story. Compare and contrast Jairus and this woman. Jairus came to the front of Jesus, kneeling. But this woman comes from behind Jesus. Perhaps there's this sense of shame on the part of this woman, not actually being allowed to even be near a crowd, let alone a rabbi like Jesus. But this woman says, even if I just touch the edge of his garment, I will be made well or I will be healed. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering or freed from her affliction, another translation puts it. Now, it's, it's really interesting what's happening here in this text. Notice again, as the story continues in verse 30, Jesus perceives that power has gone out from him. He turned around and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, I love what the disciples say next in verse 31. Jesus, don't you see the people kind of crowding around against you? His disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking to see who had done it, the text says. See, Jesus knows the difference between the dozens of people perhaps just casually bumping into him versus the intentional pursuit of this woman. There is a massive difference, is there not, between casual contact with Jesus and intentional pursuit after Jesus notices the latter, the intentional pursuit, and he responds to that intentional pursuit of him. It's part of his character. It's part of what he does. But notice also, though, that this woman touches, touches Jesus's garment. Now, what's going on here? What's, the, what's, the, what's so special about this garment? I mean, is this like this superstitious sort of thing going on? Is this kind of like, you know, back in the 90s, you know, when we all wanted a pair of Air Jordans to be like Mike? If I can have a pair of Jordans, right? Last dance, I can be like Mike. If I just touch the edge of his clothes, I will be healed. I will be made well. Is there like a superstitious thing happening going on here? I mean, Matthew and his retelling of the story, Matthew chapter 9, makes this same detail a very prominent part of his narrative. In Matthew 9 verse 20, he says that the woman touched the, quote, fringe of his garment. Okay, so what's happening here? Jesus was wearing a garment. Okay, that's basic. We get that. Now, for the next few minutes, I really want to dive into this, and it's going to require you to pay attention for a second. So let me just take like a five-minute detour through the Old Testament to really give us some background with what's happening here. And what's happening here is 
what we'll see is Jesus was wearing something like this, a Jewish prayer shawl. I have one here. And I want to read a passage from the book of Numbers that kind of highlights what's happening here. You'll see how this goes together. The book of Numbers says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generation and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it should be a tassel for you to look at and to remember the commandments of the Lord and to do them and not to follow after your, your own heart and eyes. Now, what's happening here in the book of Numbers is God is giving Israel a way to remember Remember the commandments and the instructions that God so graciously gave Israel. And so to this day, Orthodox Jews and Jews throughout, all, throughout the Hebrew Bible, as we'll see, would wear what's called this prayer shawl, and on the corner of these garments would be these tassels. Okay. Now, one thing to, to point out here is that the Hebrew word for corner is kanaf. Right? Kanaf. It's going to come up again as we go through the Old Testament here. And on the kanaf, there would be these tassels. Now, this is a prayer shawl that comes up um, throughout, again, the Hebrew Bible. There's actually another somewhat famous story where King Saul is wearing one of these prayer shawls, one of these Jewish prayer shawls, and Saul is in pursuit of King David in the book of, of Samuel, in 1 Samuel 24. And David is yet to officially ascend to the throne of Israel. David's sort of still on the run from Saul, and David actually has this opportunity in the book of Samuel to go ahead and kill King, uh, King Saul, and then he'll be able to just kind of have Saul be done away with, and he'll just be able to be king, and all will be made well. But David has integrity, and he doesn't actually kill Saul. Instead, the text tells us in 1 Samuel 24, David cuts off the kanaf of Saul's robe in 1 Samuel 24. Let me just read it to you here in 1 Samuel. Then David arose stealthily and cut off the kanaf of Saul's robe. In, in, and in the middle of the story, right, David has this opportunity to kill, king, kill Saul and he will just be able to be king and all will be made well and he will just be fine. But David stealthily cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. What's also interesting, though, is that it's not just the Jewish people that would have these kanafs, these prayer shawls on the corner, or the, a corner on these prayer shawls. God also has kanafs. What do you mean? Well, the word kanaf is actually can be translated as wing in the Hebrew Bible. So in the Psalms, when we talk about being under the shelter of God's wings, it's the same word. It's the same word for kanaf. Psalm 17 is a great example. It says this, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your kanaf. Under your wings, it's translated our English Bible, but it's the word for kanaf. And what's happening here is this was a way for the, 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 Jew, the Jewish people to remember and to stay under the protection and shelter of God's kanaf, under God's wings. Now, one last stop in the detour of the Old, Old Testament here, the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament, written about you know, a few centuries before the time of Jesus. And the last part of the book of Malachi talks about a prophecy of the coming Messiah who would come and bring healing and come and bring restoration to Israel. Malachi 4, 2 says this, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing 
in his kanaf, in his wings. So here in our text, we have a woman who pushes and kicks and barges her way through to touch Jesus, not anywhere, but at the fringe or the edge of his garment. Why? Because she believes the text. She believes the prophecies. She believes that in the shadow of God Almighty, there is healing and there is protection. In the, in the, there is healing in the kanaf of the Messiah. Again, Matthew, Matthew chapter 9 makes the same point where the woman touches the fringe of his garment, the corner of his garment, the kanaf of Jesus. And Jesus was Jewish. We know that, right? He would 100% be wearing one of these prayer shawls. And it's, it's important to just recognize that this is, I think, why this woman is, is touching Jesus in this particular spot. Why? Because she has the most biblical faith out of anyone in this story. Faith that is based on the Word of God. Faith that is based on the promises of God. I think of Romans 10, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? The Word of God. And even as we think about this story and how this woman might be a little strange to us, and this might be kind of weird that she's touching the edge of Jesus' garment. If we were going to go through the whole book of Mark, we would see that there's a whole bunch of outsiders who actually recognize who Jesus actually is, who he truly is as the Messiah. Think of the leper in Mark 1, or the woman here in Mark 5, or the Syrophoenician woman later on in Mark 7. There's a father with a boy of a boy with an unclean spirit in Mark 9, or there's children in, in Mark chapter 10, or the blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10 later on in that same chapter. All these men and women were outsiders, and they all were a little bit different, and they all had their little bit different ways of coming to Jesus. Even though they weren't the most well-trained or the elites of society, they had faith to come and pursue. These everyday people as weird as it might be in the story, as strange as it might be, these are the ones that Jesus responds to. Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, talks about this, this, this pattern in Mark where he says, the marginalized outsider rightly recognizes Jesus and responds in faith. Even when there is strangeness, in none of these cases does Mark hint that the outsider's perception of Jesus needs correction. I love that. But notice how the story continues. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. I think this is just so beautiful in this story. This woman wasn't in it for the, her own benefit. I mean, she comes to Jesus, and she spends the time to tell Jesus everything that's happened, and to go deep with Jesus. And to experience all that Jesus has for her as she tells him the whole truth. I mean, at one level, she probably was just looking for a healing of this particular disease. But she's going to get so much more. She's going to get the full attention and devotion of Jesus as Jesus brings healing to her. Because Jesus says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith, your trust has healed you. Not your faith in a superstitious magic trick, but your faith in me has healed you. Go in peace. Go in shalom and be healed. Be made new. Go in, in peace. Bring wholeness and flourishing. You have been freed from your disease. You've been freed from your suffering. Notice again, though, Jesus speaks identity over this woman. He calls her daughter. I mean, think of all the other names that this woman would have been called in her life. 
outcast, rebel, just a marginalized, no good woman. But Jesus says, no, you have identity now, acceptance now. You're no longer an unclean person or an outcast. You've been given a new identity and wholeness. And this is Jesus' will for each of us, to bring this shalom and identity to each of us, where he says, son, daughter, you have been healed. You have been made well. But hasn't there been something else or someone else in this story as well? I mean, if you're Jairus in this whole turn of events, aren't you going, hey, Jesus, wrong daughter, right? My daughter, I came to you, verse 23, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and, and heal her so that she will not die. And Jesus goes on and, and heals this woman and says, to her daughter, you are healed. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, I think that's a perfect example of just of God's timing, right? God, we, God hardly ever, ever operates on our sense of timing. I think of the Lord of the Rings, right, where Gandalf, he says early on in the first movie, a wizard is never late. He, he arrives precisely when he means to. And I love this because in verse 35, the text goes on, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further or any more? You know, I think there's an invitation here, though, to trust God in his timings and even in what we might perceive as delays. You know, earlier in the book of Mark, Jesus described himself as a doctor who comes to heal people. And this little girl, earlier on in the story, perhaps just had a few hours to live. She was like an emergency room sort of patient. And yet this woman, she's had a chronic condition for 12 years, and Jesus heals the woman with the chronic condition for 12 years instead of dealing with the ER patient. I mean, this would be medical malpractice in our day. And then even still, on top of that, Jesus has this long conversation with this woman. In verse 33, he has this whole conversation with her. And it just goes to the point where God hardly ever operates on our time schedule. I mean, have you noticed that? I mean, sometimes, isn't it seem frustrating at times where God's delays are just like, what, God, how long is this going to be like? What are, we, what are you doing here? And here's the thing. It's easy to impose our timing on God, but I love what Tim Keller says. If you impose your own view of time or schedule on God, you will struggle to feel loved by God. And the question becomes, what do these delays teach us? What does these lessons in God's timing teach us? I think, number one, that we are to expect the unexpected with Jesus. I mean, Jairus was planning on trusting Jesus for a healing. But as we'll see later on in the story, Jesus is going to bring a resurrection. Jesus is going to bring his daughter back from the dead. You know, this woman was just expecting a, a simple healing, but she's going to go public with her whole story and tell Jesus in front of the whole crowd everything. And Jesus is going to give her a new identity. I mean, all of this unexpected fruit comes out of these interactions. I think, secondly, Jesus in these instances is reversing human values. I think, again, Jairus with high reputation, high social status in this woman, though Jesus, through Jesus' delay, he loves and cares for them both. You know, there's no favoritism going on here. It's not like, oh, Jesus is going to go heal Jairus first because he has the better social reputation or the better, better pedigree or the better status. You know, I love what Tim Keller says about this. You put Jesus in a crowd and he gravitates to people who are the most messed up, who have messed up the most. See, listen, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. I don't care if you used to be on hell's paid staff. I don't care how far you have fallen. 
Jesus is, if anything, attracted to the people who are the most messed up and who have messed up the most. See, I think one of the things we learn, again, in, these, in this delay, if you will, is that God's not playing favorites. God's not playing favorites. He loves us all the same, but there's this invitation to trust God in these moments where it seems like, God, you're taking so long or your timing is off. But another thing we need to realize in God's delays is that God knows things that we don't. I mean, Jairus doesn't know that Jesus can raise someone from the dead at this point. God, Jesus has yet to do that in, in, the, in the gospel stories. Jairus has a limited amount of information. And more often than not, we don't know the whole story. In reality, we often don't know all the details. We have a limited perspective. You know, I just think personally on some of just going through life, seeing how it feels like God often delays. And oftentimes, just in those moments, I see it in my own life where there's this sense of self-centeredness that just rises in my heart, where I begin to attack God, and I begin to have these feelings of arrogance, where, God, it's like, you should do this now. You should just be fixing this situation now and do it now. We're in this kind of microwave, Amazon Prime culture, and patience is just really hard, right? But God, I think, through these delays at times, is systematically cutting down our pride and our arrogance and is teaching us to trust him in the slow process. But I love how the text continues in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, keep on believing. Only believe. I love this, right? where there's this invitation that Jesus says, do not give in to fear, but keep on believing. See, the journey for the apprentice of Jesus is to grow in our faith and to see our fear removed, to keep on believing. Literally, this is written in the sense where Jesus is saying, keep on believing, right? Where before you came to me, you were believing then when you first came to me, Jairus, but now something unexpected has happened. There has been a delay right? I didn't work the exact way you thought I was going to work. I didn't work according to your timetable. It wasn't exactly how you planned. But Jesus says in verse 36, do not fear, keep on believing. Keep on having faith. There's an element of perseverance here. There's an element where Jesus is inviting not just Jairus, but you and I today. You believed before all this happened. You were trusting me before all this happened. So do not fear now, but keep on believing. Keep on having faith. Keep on coming to me. Verse 37, the text goes on, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John and the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And we had entered, he said to him, why are you making commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he had put them all outside and took the, father, the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and she began walking around for she was 12 years of age, and, there, and they immediately were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about this, and then told them to give her something to eat. I mean, what a beautiful ending to that story. 
Jesus uses this phrase or says this phrase in Aramaic, Jesus' native tongue, Talitha kum. And this would be an everyday term, I mean, little girl. It's something that she, this little girl would have heard probably the morning before where her parents came into the room and said, little girl, it's time to get up for the day. It's time to start our day. You know, what's the significance of this? Why is this phrase being kind of highlighted here for us? Well, I think it's to show that for Jesus, just like this phrase, Talitha kum, was an everyday phrase that her parents would have said to her, for Jesus, defeating death is like not a big deal in a lot of ways. It's just an everyday thing. Little girl, get up. And for us as followers of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus is, is on a mission to defeat and destroy death. Jesus is told, we're told in the book of Revelation that Jesus holds the keys of death. It's a first century way of saying that Jesus has power, the ultimate power over death. And one day when Jesus comes back and all is restored in the new creation, there will be no more suffering, pain, tears, or death. And so as Jesus comes to this little girl, and says, Talitha kum, it's like everyday business for Jesus. That Jesus has got this. This is the Jesus that comes to us in our moments of fear and uncertainty. These things that we think are such a big deal are just everyday matters for Jesus. You know, as we kind of close though, I want to offer just sort of two quick thoughts for the week ahead. Two maybe challenges or things to consider. The first is this. Number one, to sit in this story. Or another way to say that is to pray this story. You'll love what N.T. Wright says about this passage. He says, in both of these stories with Jairus and the little and the woman, both are worth spending time on the inside in the sense of meditating on them, imagining you're in the crowd, watching it all happen. Then if you dare, identifying with the various characters in the center of this drama. And this is a wonderful way to turn scripture into prayer both today and in Jesus' day, to turn fear into faith. You know, sit with these stories this week. Think about what character you identify with. Maybe the woman who's desperate for a touch from Jesus or a touch of Jesus. Or Jairus, perhaps impatiently waiting for Jesus to show up. Or maybe you're one of the disciples. We didn't really get a chance to talk about any of them as much. Or maybe a bystander in the crowd, amazed or confused or curious for more, sit with this story this week. See, on one hand, I truly hope God is speaking to you right now, that I believe God speaks every time we open up and read from the scriptures and pray the scriptures. God is at work and his spirit is speaking to us. And at the same time, sometimes we might have to sit with the text for a bit, for a bit longer, to go back and reread and pray and meditate on these things. See, I invite you this week, not to just close your Bible at the end of this and say, okay, decent talk on Mark 5, cool story. But maybe this week, throughout this week, whatever sort of rhythm works best for you, come back to Mark 5. Maybe see if you can read it again, at least maybe three times this week, slowly over the next couple days. And just sit with the text. And maybe it will be Wednesday morning or Friday at lunch that the pennies sort of drop and God speaks and you begin to really see yourself in this story, and you really begin to hear the voice of Jesus say to you, do not fear, keep on believing. You know, don't close off that opportunity. Which leads me actually to my sort of second thought, where I kind of phrase it like this, get the ratio right. You know, what do I mean by that? Get the ratio right. Well, on a real sort of practical level, I think especially now, that the ratio between 
things that sort of lead to more fear, I'm thinking of like news consumption, even social media at times, our ratio between those things and scripture really matters. If Jesus says to us, do not fear, keep on believing, how do we grow in our believing and grow in our faith? Now, I think it's important to stay informed with all the things that are happening, but to be compulsively checking again and again is only going to increase our fear, not decrease it. It's only going to increase our anxiety, not decrease it. That's what I mean by get the ratio right between scripture and these other things that can lead to more fear. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, practically for me, that means I won't even check my phone or even email or social media until after I've spent deep time in the scriptures. Again, the scripture's invitation for us is to see that our faith is anchored and rooted in the word of God as Jesus speaks to us by his spirit. And maybe the opposite of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God is this, that fear comes by hearing and hearing the 24-hour news cycle in our day. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I think you get the point. And all I'm trying to say is that in a story like this, especially in a season like this, how can we organize our day so that scriptures and time with God get priority above and beyond our constant checking of things that are only going to lead to more fear and anxiety? You know, especially in a moment where I know for me, I'm going, God, how long is this going to last? And the timing of God is, it can be frustrating for me at times. I really resonate with perhaps what Jairus is feeling in this story. God, why are you delaying in this? What is taking so long? And to sit with this story and to recognize that I don't have all the facts. I don't have all of the knowledge. See, Jesus, he knew that he could raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jairus had no stinking idea that that was even possible. Jesus, at that, till this point in Mark 5, has yet to do that in any other story. And that he has, Jesus does, the power over sin and death. And for the woman, right? The woman didn't know how Jesus was going to respond. I mean, the woman was an outcast, a marginalized person in that day. And Jesus says to that woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. And Jesus speaks identity over her. And I think for all of us, I think as we sit with this story, as we sit with this text, I think we're all being invited to a deeper trust and a deeper relationship with Jesus where Jesus speaks that identity over us and he says to each and every one of us today, daughter, son, your faith has made you well. And as we pursue him, as we barge through the crowds, so to speak, where maybe the crowds are just kind of doing their own thing, not really paying attention. And as we press in and just say, even if I can just touch a piece of Jesus, I know that there can be healing. And even though I might not understand the timing or the rhythm or the way things are going, God is good. And I believe Jesus is saying to us this morning, do not fear, but keep on believing. And he says to all of us in one way or another, Talitha kum, little son, little daughter, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. I've got this. Come follow me. Come follow me. You might not fully understand. You might not fully have the picture. You might be surprised and there might be things where our expectations have to be realigned and our sense of timing and our sense of what should happen might have to be adjusted. All of that's in this story in Mark chapter 5. But the invitation for all of us is still the same. Come, follow me. Do not fear. Keep on believing. 
And so as I close with prayer here in a second, I want to just take just a few minutes here to pray, and we'll have 60 seconds to maybe reflect on some of these things. And think about, you know, where do you fit in in this story? Where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see Jesus coming to you? And what area in your life is Jesus saying to you, do not fear, keep on believing? In what area is Jesus saying to you, daughter, son, your faith has saved you. Come, follow me. In what area of your life is Jesus telling you to come on, it's time to get up? Little girl, little, little son, little daughter, it's time to get up. Come follow me. Where is Jesus speaking to you in this moment? Because I believe he is. So as we close in prayer and have maybe the next 60 seconds, let that be a time where you can silently reflect and maybe hear God's speaking voice in this time. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for this text. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we hear this story, we would hear your words and not mine. And that the words that have been spoken today would have been honoring to you. And God, you would use this passage, you would use this story to increase our faith. And that we would be people who would believe and trust you all the more. So as maybe we reflect on this story this week, as we seek to engage with you in the scriptures this week, God, I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith. We believe, God, but help our unbelief. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.